I have entitled this Advent series, Light from the Family Christmas Tree, or we are going to be considering Jesus' ancestry or family tree for the Advent season. In introducing us to the birth of Jesus, Matthew begins by tracing Jesus' family tree or ancestry. And I'd like to read a portion of this genealogy. Starting with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, In the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Then jumping down to verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Biud, and Biud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Malham, and, Mah uh, and Amathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So often, little attention is given to genealogies when we read them in the scripture. I'm sure you are a lot like me, and that is a, a tendency to try to just rush through the genealogies and move on to something of more significance. But we are told all scripture is given by the inspiration of God as prophet for doctrine, for proof, correction, for instruction, and righteousness. The man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished, and do all good works. And that includes the genealogies. And in this genealogy, there are some interesting aspects. The first is that there are five women that are mentioned directly or indirectly in this genealogy. They are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Jesus' family tree is a bit surprising. First, it is surprising that women would be included in the genealogy at all. Usually, they are not. Usually, it is just the men, as the men had the legal status, and the purpose of the genealogies was to trace the, the legal lineage. But here we have five women included. Second, it is surprising the women who are, are included for four of the five women have sordid backgrounds for various reasons. They are not the type of people that you would think that the scripture would point out as being ancestors to Jesus. And the third is that it's surprising as to the women who are not included. For example, we have this summary verse in verse one that says the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those are the two most notable characters, and yet Sarah is not mentioned as the wife of Abraham. And certainly much has been written about Sarah, and we know Sarah's story. 
So these five women are rather unique. This morning, we will be considering Bathsheba in Jesus' ancestry. For if you notice, in the genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, we read, And Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. Bathsheba is not mentioned by name, but rather she is simply identified as Uriah's wife. Why is that important? How does that inform the birth narrative of the Lord Jesus Christ? What light does that shed upon the person and work of Jesus Christ as he is going to be introduced in verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Why the ancestral lineage given before the actual details of the birth and why these five women? Well, to answer that question, we're going to go back to 2 Samuel, the account that we've been looking at for months, and we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 12 in particular. I've been wanting to finish 2 Samuel chapter 12 and uh, in the providence of God have been unable to do so because of COVID and other things and it brought me to Advent. One of the difficulties I always face in Advent is what I'm going to preach on this year for I have preached 152 Christmas sermons. I've been here for 38 years Four sermons a year, that's 152. How, many, how often can you preach on Christmas? Well, thanks to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and being in that passage and studying David and Bathsheba and its account, we're introduced to Solomon who's in the lineage of Jesus. Now, what are we to learn from that fact? Well, let me begin by saying, as we look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, and you can turn your Bibles there because that's going to be our text this morning, 2 Samuel chapter 12. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we encounter a number of statements that are difficult to understand. And there is a humility that we need to possess in addressing the issues of life in general and the scriptures in particular. We must always keep in mind that God is God and we are not. God is infinitely greater than we are. God's ways are unsearchable. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 reads, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. The word inscrutable means to be incomprehensible. That after careful consideration, examination, and investigation, we still cannot fully understand God's way, no matter how hard we try. Isaiah 55, 8, 9, you've heard it often. It's one of my favorite portions of scripture. For it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. Put it in a more common vernacular. God's thoughts and our thoughts are worlds apart. Worlds apart. The famous Puritan Richard Baxter put it this way, and I quote, From this greatness and immensity of God 
Also, your soul must reverently stay all its busy, bold inquiries. And know that God is to us and to every creature incomprehensible. If you can fathom or measure him and know his greatness by a comprehensive knowledge, you are not God. A creature cannot comprehend nothing but a creature. You may know God, but not comprehend him. As your foot treads on the earth, but does not cover all the earth. The sea is not the sea if you can hold it in a spoon. I love that. The sea is not the sea if you can hold it in a spoon. So in essence, if we could fully explain or understand God, he would cease to be God. God is incomprehensible to us. We can know him, but only in part. And in that unknowability, God is to be worshipped. The verse that I'm going to uh, use as my text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, which reads, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed the clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. So my theme this morning is that God is deserving of our worship. God is deserving of our worship. And you may say, what has this got to do with Advent? Well, be patient and I will connect the dots. But it's going to be a long time coming. So you've got to hang in there with me. And you've got to zig and you've got to zag. But you'll get the point at the end. All right? The theme is that God is deserving of our worship. We begin by looking at the background to David's worship of God. David worships God despite the emotional stress and hardship that David is under. The cause of David's emotional stress and hardship is the affliction of his son. Now it's been a few weeks since we've been in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And if you remember, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and has arranged for her husband Uriah to be killed. Uriah dies. Bathsheba laments his death. David marries Bathsheba. And David is confronted by Nathan concerning his sin. Nathan says that David's sin is going to be forgiven. We'll start with Nathan's confronting David concerning David's sinfulness. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. So once confronted Nathan, uh, once Nathan confronts David, David repents. And Nathan reassures David that his sin is forgiven and David will not die. Verse 13. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, David was deserving of death on two counts. Both adultery and murder were capital offenses in the Old Testament. And so for either of those offenses, it would have been appropriate for David to be put to death. But God spares David's life. However, 
Nathan announces to David that David's son will die as a result of David's brazenness. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because, that's an important word, because, by this deed, <coughs> by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. The child who is born to you shall die. Now, I'm not going to address the theological issues associated with the child's death as it relates to David's having been forgiven. That is potentially a theological minefield, meaning that it can blow up in our faces. And the way that it can blow up is that it can easily be understood in a way that is not honoring and glorifying to God, but actually is a reproach to God in some way. So in order to address that issue, we would need to proceed slowly and carefully with a great deal of precision and accuracy and expertise to work our way through the whole aspect of forgiveness and judgment. I certainly do not have the time this morning to consider God's forgiveness and the consequences of sin. But more importantly, I cannot satisfactorily explain why God does what he does in relationship to David's son. Give me 10 weeks, and at the end of that study, you would not be satisfied and I would not be satisfied. To be honest, I don't understand it. Nor do we have to fully understand it. More importantly, I don't think David could explain it either. I don't know that David could reconcile in his mind that God had forgiven him and yet this child is going to die as a consequence of his sin. That is a part of this God whose ways we simply don't understand. But rather, what we need to focus on this morning is the incredible emotional hardship that David is experiencing. For David is not only going to have to deal with the child's death, but also David has the emotional stress and hardship of knowing that David is somehow responsible for all that his child is experiencing. Can you understand that weight? To see your child grow weaker and weaker and to die and to know that you are somehow responsible for that. I submit to you that's an incredible burden to bear. That that would raise all kinds of theological questions. You know, we can talk about it in an academic way. But he's living it. He's experiencing it moment by moment as he sees this child grow weaker and weaker. So God proceeds to do what God said he would do. Verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and became sick. So David's response is that David prayed to God for the child. Because it was God that afflicted the child, it is God to whom David appeals. 
Notice the therefore in verse 16. David therefore sought God. Why? Because it was God who made him sick. So the only remedy is going to be God. So he prays and he appeals to God. David prayed that the child would be spared in verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. On behalf of the child. And it becomes absolutely clear in the text that what he's praying for is the child's life would be spared, that the child would not die. We know that from verse 22. He said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted, I wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. So he'd been praying for the child to live. But the child does not live, the child dies. As God said that it would. And verse 18, on the seventh day, the child died. Now, the servants are afraid of what David's response might be to the child's death. Look at verse 18. It says, on the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? And now notice these next words. He may do himself some harm. He may do himself some harm. They were afraid that David was going to commit suicide. They saw this David as so fraught and so concerned and this posture that he was taking of laying on the ground and of weeping and praying and fasting that they were concerned that once he hears the news that he's actually going to commit suicide and he can't take it. He's going to die. And so they're wrestling with how, that, how are we going to tell him? You think that's really far-fetched? Is that a, a crazy concern? Do you think anybody would really respond that way? I think so. I think that emotional stress and anguish can cause people to do things that normally would never do. That this was a situation that truly was fraught with danger. But David does not respond in any of the ways in which they anticipate that he will respond. David's response is quite different to the death of his son. His response is to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord. Let me unpack that for you. First, David did not go to pieces when he perceived that the child died. He kept his wits about him. Verse 19. But when David saw that the servants were whispering together... David understood that the child was dead. He could put two and two together. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. So David kept his wits about him. He understood what was going on. He was rational. He was thinking. And David then prepared himself for worship. He made himself presentable. He did not enter into the Lord's house as a mourner, verse 20. 
Then David arose from the earth and he washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord. He got ready to meet the Lord, put off his mourning clothes, washed, anointed himself, and entered into the Lord's house. And then our text, David did indeed worship the Lord, verse 20. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And worshipped. The root of the Hebrew word that's translated as worship here means to bow down. To bow down. A symbolic act of humbling oneself before God. So we find out that the very essence of worship is to bow down or humble ourselves before the Lord. Thus the essence of worship is the submission of oneself to God. Even as Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That that is the essence of worship. To present yourself as a living sacrifice, meaning that God can do with me whatever he desires. My body is his to do as he pleases. God can be trusted. God can be believed. I can entrust myself and my circumstances to God. You see, worship is not simply resigning ourselves to what the Lord does. And worship is not simply accepting what the Lord does. But worship is an appreciation. It is a gratitude for what the Lord does. So then we ask ourselves a very pertinent question. That is, how in the world could David express gratitude for the death of his child? How could he come before God and give him praise? Which brings us to number three, the explanation of David's response. What leads David to worship God in this instance? On the death of his son. Well first, David did not lose sight of God's grace in the midst of David's sin and David's difficulty. Starting verse 21. Then the servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for this child while he was alive, but when he, the child died, you arose and ate food. We don't get it, they say. Well, here's David's response. Verse 22, he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Here was what was in the back of his mind. Who knows? Whether the Lord will be gracious to me that this child may live. How do I not know that if I show my repentance that, that God is, is going to relent and, and God is going to allow this child to live because I know God is gracious. I know God is good. So it's very significant that David did not think that his sin changed God's disposition to David. He did not think that God was no longer gracious or that he would not be gracious or that God is not good. 
David believed in the grace and goodness of God. And so he prayed. And so he prayed. Secondly, David viewed what God did as just and right. David found no fault in God. On Sunday evenings, we have been looking at the Psalms, and most recently we looked at Psalm 51, the first part. We're going to look at the second part tonight. The first part dealt with David's confession in this instance, in this situation where he's confronted by Nathan over the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and having Uriah, her husband, murdered. And in that confession in Psalm 51, Psalm, David says this in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and that one is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David says, you are justified in what you do. You are right in what you do. And blameless in your judgment. David found no fault in God. David did not think that God had treated him unfairly, unjustly. He did not accuse God of any wrongdoing. But rather, he worshipped God. There is a, a similar circumstance to some degree, but yet the situation is quite different. And that is Job's response to the death of his children. And if you know the book of Job, Job lost all of his children on the very same day. Devastating. Devastating. All of his children die on the very same day. I'll pick up the account in Job chapter 1, verse 18. A servant comes. He's getting all this bad news. And while he was yet speaking, while all this other bad news was coming to him of, of everything that he had being destroyed and crops and, and animals, etc. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. What is Job's response? Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his clothes and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And worshipped. It's the very same response of David, to worship. Then listen to how Job's worship is described, verse 21. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. And now listen to this. Blessed, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed. Blessed means to be praised. It is to honor. It's to venerate. It is praise offered in gratitude. And so Job, verse 22 says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. 
You see the commonality of worship? That God is not charged with wrongdoing. And I say to you, that's the minefield for us. We don't look at this passage or any circumstance of life and find fault with a God who to be praised for he does not do what is wrong. What he does is praiseworthy. David found no fault in God. And so his worship was true. Now how does David arrive at that point? Well, let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and look at David's thought process. David views the situation beyond David's control. Verse 23, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? He's answering the question, why doesn't he continue fasting? And why doesn't he continue weeping? Why change? And he, he says, can I bring him back again? Of course, the answer is no. But I submit to you that is much more than just a, a pragmatic statement. Or as I said, worship is not simply a resigning ourselves to what the Lord does. Worship is even more than an acceptance of what the Lord does. Worship is an appreciation for what the Lord does. So where's the appreciation? What is it that David is grateful for? Well, the answer, David comforts himself with the thought of eternal life, verse 23. But now he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? And now these words, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, here again is a theological minefield. What does this teach us about death of, a, of an infant, of a child's relationship to the Lord? And volumes, literally volumes, have been written on this subject. And I can't give you all of the summarization of all of that material. And again, I just have to humbly submit to you that there's a lot in this area that we just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But what we can say with absolute certainty is this. We are to worship the Lord and bend a knee before him. We are to say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away, and blessed is the name of the Lord. We are to keep in mind that the Lord is gracious, that God will do what is just and right. We can trust God in these things. We don't have to explain it all. For we know our God. He is good. He's merciful. He's kind. He does what's right. We can leave it in his hands and be comforted in times of sorrow and heartache and things that I simply cannot explain as to the why in life. I don't need to know the why. I need to know the God behind it. I need to know that God is sovereign. And his will is done. And I can rejoice in his will. Because I can rejoice in my God. I want to move to the appropriateness of worship. And God's acceptance of David's worship. The reality of God's forgiveness of David. 
Here we see the redemptive activity of God. How God transforms, how God forgives, how God restores. In this redemptive process, there is this restoration. It's a wonderful part of the gospel, how God makes things right. Even our sinfulness. It begins with the redemption of David's marriage, verse 24. Then David comforted, I just want you to note this simple little phrase, his wife, his wife, Bathsheba. Originally, God was displeased with David's marrying Bathsheba. You go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, it reads, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And I said that thing included the adultery, that thing included the death of Uriah and the marriage to Bathsheba. In the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 12, we are reminded that Bathsheba had been Uriah's wife, verse 15. Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David. All of the time, up until this point, she is referred to as Uriah's wife. Now, now, in verse 24, she is referred to as David's wife. David's wife. This is an important change. It speaks of God's forgiveness and acceptance. David, in turn, comforts Bathsheba Verse 24, this is the first mention of David comforting Bathsheba. Previously, we had seen that Bathsheba mourned the death of her husband Uriah, verse 26 of chapter 11. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. David then married Bathsheba, but he was in no place to comfort her over her husband's death. Verse 27, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But no mention of comfort. How in the world could David comfort his wife over the death of her husband when he caused it? What can he say? Too bad your husband's dead. It was in his hand. But now, but now in this redemptive activity of God, David is actually able to comfort Bathsheba. How? I submit to you with the comfort that he was comforted with. The worship that he had ascribed to God. This wonderful thought that we will go to be with him. Now provides a basis for him to speak to his wife and comfort her concerning the death of this child. That he'll be in God's presence and we'll be with him. Paul writes in Corinthians, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. David, because of his worship, because of his high view of God, was now able to help Bathsheba through this hardship of her 
child's death and all that she was experiencing. There is the redemption of David's marriage. Secondly, there is the redemption of David's family, this wonderful transformation. Look at verse 24 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. That David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Solomon. Bathsheba, who lost her first son, later has Solomon. The name Solomon means peace. David and Bathsheba were at peace with each other and at peace with God. Now there's something very important that you need to keep in mind here. And that is a great deal of time elapses between verses 23 and 24. As you just read the text, it, it seems as though this child dies. He goes in and has a sexual relationship with Bathsheba and Solomon is born. But if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 5, you will find out that Bathsheba actually gives birth to Shobab, Nathan, and then Solomon. Well, there's two other kids that are born before Solomon is born. We have this very truncated account. They're left out, and we're just told about this first child dying, and then we're told about Solomon. I believe so that we do not fail to make the connection. That we don't fail to recognize the goodness and grace and mercy of God. I believe the other children are admitted so that we do not miss the acceptance of David and Bathsheba's son Solomon. Look at first, 2 Samuel 12, 24. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her as she bore a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. The Lord loved him. This child that's born of this ill-gotten relationship is loved by God. Loved by God. The death of the first child is not the end of the story. We're to marvel at how God graciously works and restores and heals. David's sin did not keep David from continuing in his kingship. We're going to look at that tonight, where David prays that he would be able to continue as king. He's able to continue as king. Not only is he able to continue as king, but the kingdom is going to pass on to David's son. But lo and behold, of all the sons of David, the son to whom the kingdom is going to pass is Solomon. Solomon. The child of David and Bathsheba. This God who was dishonored, blasphemed, it says, King James, for this act of David is now going to be glorified. Now going to be glorified. Verse 25, and sent a messenger by Nathan the prophet, so he called the name Jedidiah. 
Because of the Lord. Jedediah means love to the Lord. Love to the Lord. So, conclusion. In the midst of our sin and sorrow, misery, we need to respond to the Lord in worship. We're to bow before him in all that God does. Worship is not simply a resigning ourselves to what the Lord does. Worship is more than acceptance of what the Lord does. Worship is an appreciation for what the Lord does. God is indeed worthy of our worship. He's gracious. He's merciful. He forgives. He redeems us in the fullest sense of that word. God heals. God restores. God forgives. God embraces and welcomes. God loves. The genealogy of Jesus demonstrates God's acceptance and transformation of the sinner. In the genealogy of Jesus, we were reminded of all the sordid events surrounding David and Bathsheba. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it read, And Jesus, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. There it is again. There it is again. But this son of David by the wife of Uriah is in the lineage and ancestry of Jesus. Jesus. It is fitting for Jesus the one who will save his people from their sins, the one who came to redeem, the one who came to restore, the one who came to heal, would have David, Bathsheba, and Solomon in his physical lineage. That they would be a part of his physical family. For the person of Jesus He's not ashamed of David, he's not ashamed of Bathsheba, and he's not ashamed of Solomon. And Jesus is not ashamed of us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 reads, Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brethren. We're all part of one family, it says. He's not ashamed to call them brethren. Have you ever been ashamed to be associated with or identified by someone in your family? Someone in your family tree? Some black sheep? You kind of cringe when people know that you are related to them? Have you ever been ashamed or of being associated with God's people? A brother or sister in Christ. What they have done. And where you'd like to shun yourself and just say, well, I'm not like that. That's not who I am. It's amazing. It is truly amazing. That Jesus is not ashamed of you and me. That he gladly owns us as his brothers and sisters. And God gladly owns us as his sons. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
in heavenly places in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. He intentionally chose us. It isn't just that we can't choose our relatives. But God can. And God does. And he intentionally adopted us to be a part of his family. And Ephesians 1, 6 says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us and the beloved. The Christmas message is that a Savior has come to the world. That Jesus came to save his people from their sins. The good news is that you and I can be made acceptable to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgiven. Healed. Restored can be used of God. A simple thing. A genealogy that lists five women, one of whom not mentioned even by name, but simply the wife of Uriah has a son by David. That is a God to be worshipped. That is a God to be praised. That is a God to rejoice in. This morning, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, he welcomes you into his presence. You are without spot. And you are blameless before him. He will not be ashamed of you when you stand in his presence. For you are redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, this babe who was sent into the world so that we could receive the adoption of sons. Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice in your great goodness and grace to us. Lord, we acknowledge that you are to be worshipped. There is so much about you that we do not understand and we cannot explain. But Lord, we see how gracious and merciful you are. We see how you do forgive sin. We see how you do redeem. We see how you restore. And Lord, there's this incredible hope of eternal life and the mercy of God that's shown. Lord, May our inability to understand never infiltrate to the degree that we ascribe to you wrong motives, that we say things of you in which we find fault. But Lord, may we be like Job who does not sin with our mouths. May we be careful to acknowledge your ways are not our ways, and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And they are as high as the heavens are above the earth. Lord, thank you 
Thank you. Thank you that we can worship you. Thank you for the birth of the Lord Jesus, who you sent your son into this world in order to make us your own. Thank you that we are part of your family. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.